teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. And this morning, I, I want to pray. Before I do, I was just going to share a little story. One of the cool things about being a dad, I've got four kids. And um, if you've been to Celebration or heard about it, uh, the grand opening was last night. It, it's really over-the-top awesome. And I'm saying that partly because my, uh, my eight-year-old, she just turned eight, is in Celebration. But the, the music is great. The, the story is great. There's humor uh, but there's also sort of that biblical side of it, and it's, it's just a really wonderful performance. But as a dad, I just want to share a story about one of my little girls that we were working about a year and a half trying to teach her how to read. My firstborn learned to read on her own, basically. Honestly, she, we would read to her, but I don't know how, but she started like, she started reading the words with us. And we didn't sit down and try to teach her the alphabet. And before we knew it, she was off and reading. And my son... It was just the opposite. I mean, we were working because we were like, well, he should be reading by now because Emma read by now. And it didn't work that way. And then, you know, kindergarten went. And then first grade went. And then it's second grade. And I, yeah, I started worrying about, you know, started worrying about it. But, but sure enough, he, he started getting it on his timetable. And then our thirdborn comes through. And again, I'm like, well, we better start earlier with her. And so we start working. And I remember one night, I'm in the room, and she comes to me, and she's like, Dad, Dad, I know how to read. I was like, really? And she says, yes, look. And she pulls open the book, and she points to a three-letter word, cat. And she goes, cat. And I said, you're right. And I, I celebrate it with her. You, you know how to read. And I was excited because, to me, some of the greatest truths that I have learned have been, I've learned from men that I never met physically. I learned from men that have passed away long ago, but I've also learned from the Lord in Scripture. And if I didn't know how to read, I wouldn't have had access to Francis Schaeffer. I wouldn't have had access to C.S. Lewis. I wouldn't have had access to J.R. Tolkien or Martin Luther or John Wesley. You know, the, some of these great men of faith that, that we will teach about during next semester some, I wouldn't have ever met them. And so Kate comes to me and she tells me, hey, Dad, I've learned to read. The next night I said, hey, let's, let's work on reading. And she says, I don't need your help. And guess what she told me? I already know how to read. Now, now for her, she knew how to read because she could sound out cat. But you and I, I'm proud of her, but <clears throat> we know something else about reading, don't we? There's something, more, there's something more to reading than sounding out cat, right? That you're not going to get much out of War and Peace if all you can read is cat. You, can't, you won't get much out of a love letter if all you can write and read is cat. That, that's just the beginning of it, right? And, and I love that scripture's like that. It's simple enough that a kid can get it. But there's an arrogance that we also can have in our heart that we could say, oh, no, 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 Lord, I understand faith. Look, I trusted you at one point in time. Lord, I understand love because, look, I did one nice thing to someone. Does that make sense? 
But I think God, what for us as men, as we as we wrap up this semester of Warrior's Heart and we look to next semester of Warrior's Heart, my prayer really is that we would move from the elementary understanding and the elementary practice of things like faith and hope and love. And that we would see the deeper picture that God has given us through men and women of faith, but we'll, we'll just happen to be looking at the men of faith, but can't discount the women of faith that have done unbelievably awesome things from, from Lottie Moon to my grandmother and, and to, the, to the apostles to the apostles. The very first evangelists were women that Christ appeared to at the tomb. And then they came and they told the men. And so God has always had that spot there. I just happen to be a men's minister with a lot of women in the house, a lot of daughters in the house. So I want to pray right now that God will, will teach us and show us, just like my daughter, my hunger and thirst for her is not that she would be able to be satisfied with reading Cat, although I celebrate that she did, right? But I want her to go well beyond that, well beyond that. And I want us, I want me, selfishly, I want to go beyond a simple understanding of faith and hope and love. And so let, let's pray and invite Christ into this time. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing good, nothing lasting, nothing of beauty. God, that my days apart from you um, are full of, of Eric, and I made life the best I could. And Father, you knew it was insufficient. It was broken. It hurt, and it hurt others. And yet, Lord, in you, I'm not perfect yet, but Lord, you, you declare me that way. You declare me completely righteous in you. Your love has not been diminished from the times I've turned my back or the times I've walked away. And your kindness has brought me back. Your consequences have brought me back. Your love has brought me back. And Father, you know deeply that there is a, a group of men and women that have also brought me back. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise us up to be men like that, that we, we bring people back to you. We introduce people to you. Help us to understand more this Advent season, God. We celebrate that this you have come in the flesh, and yet, Lord, you have left us in the flesh that we may help you again be incarnated to other people. So use this morning, change our hearts, and God, we just say we're your men, and on our own merit we're not, but in you and faith we are, and we thank you for that. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, well, Kate, you know, that, that, that childish understanding of reading, I want us to look at a, a word called love. We talk about great men of faith, and we're going we're gonna to come to a man of faith, and we're going to see how he expresses it in a form of love. But I want to go back before this guy is mentioned in the Bible. I want to I look at an episode out of Christ's life. And in John 13, if you all would turn with me to John 13, and what I love about John 13 is it is one of the most up and down passages of Scripture. It is a passage that I find myself thinking, well, that would be nice. That would be great. And at the same time, I'm like, how could Christ do this? And there's a challenge for me to grasp it. And then it's before the feast of the Passover. This is on the heels of Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem in chapter 12, where people put fronds down and they welcomed him as a king coming in 
And yet you and I know because we've read the whole story that his kingship would not be inaugurated at that moment. And it wouldn't be glorious in the eyes of the world either. The, the second coming we're waiting on is the inauguration that we see this unbelievable king of kings coming. But at this point, that's not who he is. So he's coming in. They've done, they've done everything in an awesome way. And then this evening, he is there and he secures a room. And in the room, they are going to take what we call the Lord's Supper. And in this point, he says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I would just underline that. He loved them to the end. Most men, I am this way, I begin things really well. I don't always finish things really well. Scripture is full of men that didn't always finish things well. American history is written through people that didn't finish things well and that did. And there's all the difference in the world. And for Christ at this moment, he is going to finish it well. He is going to love them unto the end. And so during the supper here, they are, there's going to be a revelation that somebody is going to betray him. And who is that person? Judas, right. We, we know that. We know that. And what I want us to do is I want us to look that they go through this meal. And at the end of the meal, like before, actually before this whole thing gets going, he does something very radical and very different. He's the host. He's a master, so to speak. And in verse 6, what does, what does Peter call him here? I think it's verse 6 or verse 4. Um, here it is, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, what? Lord, do you wash my feet? And when Peter says, Lord, there's lots of titles for Christ, but this title for Lord is not a halfway title. It's a title that says, you have all authority and I am your what? I'm your servant. Peter rightly understood the lordship of Christ and the servanthood of men. He gets it and he understands it. But ironically, what he says next, because Christ is doing something here that's radical, loving them to the end, what does Christ... He's already done something. He took off the clothes of the master... And he put on the dress of a servant. And yet he gets to Peter and Peter says, Lord. He doesn't say servant, wash my feet. Back then to clean up hospitality, you would wash the feet of the guests, but it wouldn't be you, the master. It would be the servant of the master would do that. Jesus doesn't do it that way, does he? He's the master and yet he's also the servant. We call him a servant leader. And he sits here and he washes the feet. And I'm wondering here for you, and I wonder here for me, who else is sitting at the table? Judas. And what does Jesus know? And if you read this text, you'll see that he says, one of you here is going to betray me, and what you have decided to do, go ahead and do it now. And yet Jesus has already washed his feet. And I ask myself, if that's the love of God, 
if that's the love of God, and the word here used is agape, and I know a lot of you have heard that word and know that word. There's philos, which we use Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's eros, we have the word erotic, that it is a passionate display of love. And then there is agape, which is this very godly, unconditional love. It says that I love you in spite of blank, and you fill in the blank. In spite of that, I love you. So Jesus is here, and to model it, he chooses to do something to Judas that he could have crippled Judas, by the way. He could have struck him down. He knew what he was going to do, but Christ doesn't. He agapes him to the very end. And I ask myself, I think about that, and I'm like, so Judas walks out, and the other disciples are left behind and they still don't know. It says they still don't know that they thought he was going to actually purchase something else so that everything would be great. They didn't know he was going out to betray. And I, and I have, you know, my, my thought is, are there certain people in life, certain types of people in life that I have enough baggage with that I'm like, Lord, I don't want to love them. Lord, I don't want to forgive them. I don't want to love them. I don't want to engage them. I don't want to think about them. I don't want to agape them. And yet Jesus, because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he's also the servant, he gives a command here in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says this, I give you a new command. Agape one another. Agape one another, just as I have agaped you, you must also agape one another by this, by what? What is the this? Agapeing one another by that. It's a verb. By the fact that I agape others, people will know that you are my disciples. They'll know that I am his disciple, that you are his disciple, that we are his disciples. And he gives a conditional statement here. If, what? If you have agape for one another, if you have agape for one another. Now he says this after Judas has left. And I think it's going to be less than 24 hours and his disciples will begin to understand that they're going to remember that the very feet that were dirty from walking in the streets of Judas, that Jesus cleaned, Judas would dirty his own feet again, but this time it would be dirt on his feet from taking the guards to Jesus in the garden. And that Jesus would then wash him, but not with water, but with blood, because he agaped even him. Now, I don't know where Judas resides in heaven or in hell. I'll let God's the judge of everyone. I don't want to speculate, but I know this, that he was washed once for sure by Jesus, even though Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he was willing to wash him again if Judas repented in his heart and poured his faith into him. Does that make sense? So this is this idea of agape that's here. And what I want us to do is, there is a man in scripture that touches millions of lives. 
and we're not, we don't have time to look at every event in his life. I was going to try to teach on four, and I called up Jeff a couple of days ago, and I was like, this is like way too long. And so he said, hey, just pick two of them. So I've picked two of them. I've picked two snapshots from his life. His name is Joseph, and how many of y'all know who Joseph is? The son of Israel. Yeah, so, so there's Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Son of Israel. There's Joseph in the New Testament, and who is that? Yeah, so there's Jesus' father, Joseph, right? Old Testament, Joseph, sold off into slavery, had everything bad happen to him, falsely accused of sexual assault, you name it, it's happened, and yet he maintained faith in Christ, I mean, faith in God, future Christ, and all of it. There's another Joseph that I want us to look at. And his life, it's a pivot point. His ministry is a pivot point in the Bible. It's a pivot point in the New Testament. His influence is over three of the Gospels, all of Paul's writings are all influenced by this one man named Joseph. Now, now, how many of y'all have ever been given a nickname before? Now, now, let me ask you this. How noble was the nickname you got? Okay. So I've got some nicknames. I've got a nickname named Sweet Pea, which is not an endearing one. I hated it. Sweet Pea. Uh, little Big Head, that came in seventh grade because I was the smallest kid, but I had the melon. You know, I had the gargantuan melon, the large cranium. I, I did have Thor, which was really cool. Thor was a really good name, and that was in wrestling in fifth grade. A guy had hurt me, and so I, I literally grabbed him by the, the Jimmy Crack Corn and, and his neck, and this is illegal in wrestling. It's on WWF, but, and I literally picked him up and slammed him down on the mat but I was like a skeleton. I mean, I, like, Care Poster Child was another name for me. That, the wrestling coach gave that to me because my arms were so not big. And uh, I have nicknames, and none of them are really noble. None of them. The apostles gave a nickname to Joseph that we know him by, and it's Barnabas. That's his, that's his name, Barnabas. And it means, according to Acts chapter 4, if y'all would turn to Acts chapter 4, I love it. It means son of encouragement. That when we think of encouragement, we want to think of Barnabas. And our introduction to Barnabas comes at this time that, that the apostles have been locked up in jail for preaching Christ. They get out of jail and they say, hey, we're letting you out. We've beaten you. We've locked you up. We're letting you out. Don't do it again. And they say, well, uh, you know, sort of fat chance about that. And they pray that they would have more boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. They pray for more boldness. Well, they go out and they begin to preach. But what we also find is at the end of this chapter... These guys, I mean, how courageous is that? To look eyeball to eyeball, to already be beaten for something, already be persecuted for something, and then to say, you know what? I don't care. I want to be more bold, more flagrant, more outward with my faith. Is there any fear in these guys? No, there's not. There's not. We're going to look in a little bit that there actually is, but there's not right now. I don't know what happened in, in between. But here we get introduced to a man named Barnabas. And it says this, and this is in verse 30, 35, 36, 34. 
the early church, they're giving tons of their possessions commonly together for the needs of the people that have given their heart to Christ. They're living in a community together. They're selling property. They're giving items to the, at the apostles' feet, and they're distributing them. Now, this isn't communism. There's no centralized government dictating that we own everything and we'll just share it with you. This is free will, love, agape being manifested here. That's another message for another day, especially in our country today, of generosity and giving and loving like that. It says, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, so he's an educated guy, a native of Cyprus, he's not a local sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word that comes through my mind, he's all in. Agape is all in. That if we want to be a man of faith, our faith must be all in. Point one, that our faith should be all in. I wonder if if my life got a nickname based off of how I lived, and most of them were, either how I looked or how I lived, would it be halfway Eric? Would it be unforgiving Reed? Would it be complacent Eric? Like like what would be the nickname of my life if it was 100% accurate to how I lived life? And I ask you the same question, not out of legalism, but I just ask you in the same way that I ask myself. Lord, what would the nickname be that the apostles give Eric Reed or Jeff Geisler or Lou? Like, like what would be the name that God would give us? I don't know, but let me just say, I think we can begin to say, Lord, what name would would we want you to give us? What name would we want to live up to? Would we be a grace giving man? Would we be bold in proclaiming Christ? Would we be generous in our stewardship? Would we risk for the gospel? I don't know. Would you stand in the marketplace for Christ? Would you forgive a spouse after years of being against each other and you've let the love sort of die down? Would you forgive them? Would you serve them again? A child that had wounded you that took what you had and left at 18 and misused what you had given, would you be willing to go to that child and say, I forgive you? Would we reach back out again? I don't know. Would that, I'd rather have that nickname than Little Big Head, okay? I'd rather have that nickname than Little Big Head. And so here we have just one snapshot from his life that Barnabas is completely all in. His resources were not his resources. His conversations weren't his conversations. His relationships weren't his relationships. And there's a word for that. We have a word called integrity, and it's rooted in a mathematical concept in Greece that we have for integer. An integer is a non-fractional number. It's called a whole number 
And that when God looks at the heart of one of his followers, (laughs) hear it, he doesn't want to see a fractional heart. He doesn't want us to be half-hearted. He wants us to have integrity. He wants us to be wholehearted, undivided, right? And so here you see that Barnabas is all in. What that means is he has integrity. And that as a man of God, a man of faith, a man who wants to live agape, we cannot do it halfway. We can't be half-hearted. It will only flow out of our lives as we are completely and utterly all in to Christ. Does that make sense? I hope you're not hearing judgment in that. I hope you're hearing hope in that. And now let me give you the second, the second scene. I want to fast forward in there. And this would be called sort of the famous movie, The Life of Barnabas. This would be scene two in it. And to let you know a little bit about this, this part of the story, there is a guy by the name of Saul who has gone on. And we know the Old Testament and the New Testament Saul. The New Testament Saul had persecuted the church. He took pride in it. He was a zealot. He was Jewish, but was so against the church because the church was not faithful to Judaism. The church was a blight. It was a cancer upon Judaism. How could Jewish people and Gentile people, like how could all of this stuff circulate together? It's going to get us in trouble with Rome. It's going to bring persecution, everything. And so Paul, uh, Saul, is out and about. And we know in the story that God appears to him. Jesus blinds him and redeems and saves him and changes his name, becomes Paul. And we know all the books he's written. But the crazy thing is he has come to Christ and is ministering. And in Acts 9, we find here, especially verses 26 and 27, that he has come and he's going up to the disciples or the apostles is what they're called at this point. And it says this. And when he had come to Jerusalem, now this is Saul. He attempted to join the disciples. And what does it say about them? They were all afraid. Now, remember who this is, Peter, John. Now, five chapters earlier, what did we say about these guys? Did they have any fear? No fear. And here they're afraid. I don't know what changed. I really don't. But there's a guy by the name of Barnabas. There's a guy by the name of Barnabas. It says they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, but who? Barnabas, Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles, which I'm sure they weren't happy with that, by the way. That's like. That's like bringing the Riddler into the Batcave. It's like that you don't do that. If you're Robin, you don't bring the Riddler into the Batcave. That's just a bad day, right? If you're Lois Clark, you don't, you don't put kryptonite in your purse and, and, and walk it over and get Lex Luthor and say, hey, here's some of this, and oh, by the way, come with me, and all of a sudden you take him to Superman. You just don't do that. Or let's, let's put it in historical terms with real, with real situation that could have happened in World War II. What if somehow Hitler had come to Christ and repented? And what if after 
so many millions had been killed and gassed and shot down that he really had a conversion in his heart, that God changed his heart, and he walked into a Jewish ghetto. And he still dressed as Hitler. The people would have run. They would have hid. They would have been terrified. But there's this little guy that comes out, and he sees him, and he walks up to him, and he says, hey, something's different about you. I don't know what's different. He says, hey, I've, I've, I found Christ. I know I said I was a Christian earlier when I was rising up in the Third Reich, but I'm, I'm repenting. This is, this is all wrong. Imagine that, right? Imagine the, the courage it would take to walk up to that guy in that moment, knowing that you may be killed. Well, that's Barnabas. Not only is he all in, but number two is he's a risk taker for the kingdom of God. His love was risky love. It wasn't safe love. It's easy to love the people that look just like you. It's easy. If they speak your tongue and you, you have the same stories, it's easy. Well, let me tell you, that's called a click. That's called a country club. That's called something other than the church. That the church is a community of men who are all in and they're risking every day to reach out to people that are different than they are, that haven't heard about Christ or maybe have rejected Christ 10 other times. But they say that in my generation, the average person had to hear the gospel nine times before it even made sense where they would yield their mind and heart and life to it. And today they're saying it's even more than that. And so how many of y'all have shared Christ in the last year and been rejected? And because of that rejection, how many of y'all felt discouraged? I did. Okay, and I know it's not about me. He's just asking us to be an ambassador. That's it, just to share. That's it. Not manipulate, just share. How many of us would be willing to go to a coworker and share with them nine times? They reject it eight. But the ninth time they say, you know what? That makes sense. I, I, I don't know what's different, but yes, I would like to know more about Christ. And I'm just telling you that, that I don't have the courage that Barnabas has in this area. I, I, I will risk once typically and twice at the most, honestly. And I, at that point, I'm like, I'll just pray for them. I don't risk again. I don't. And yet statistics show us that if, they're not multiple presentations of the gospel. And yes, it doesn't mean the same person every time. But let's just understand, Barnabas took this ginormous risk. A great risk. And so in closing, I, I want to say this. I, didn't, I just looked at the time. The world more than ever before needs Barnabases to be rising up to unleash Paul's. He needs Barnabas's to rise up to unleash Paul's. And I want to say that for us as men, if we're going to be great men of faith, there's another phrase, we would be great men of love. And that our love would be all in and risky. And that God will use this. There are messengers that don't know Christ yet that are passionate people. And we think they don't even care. They're very successful 
or maybe they're the opposite, but they would be the mouthpiece that God would use to bring thousands and thousands of people to him. Without Barnabas, we don't get the rest of Paul's letters. I don't believe we do. They would not have been accepted. It would have been this wild-haired John the Baptist ministry over here and the apostles keeping it all close to the chest and the Gentile missions don't happen and the writings don't get canonized and we have some gospels and that's it. And so I want to pray over you that at Christmas time here, Christ took a risk to come to us and it didn't look well for some of it at the cross But God's power is completely sufficient and triumphant in every obstacle. And for us in our life, I don't know what you're facing, but he is completely enough and he will be triumphant if we're all in to him and we take the risk of advancing his kingdom. So let's pray. There's a ton of questions on that sheet front and back, more than you'll ever have time for probably in a week or two. If you journal, I would recommend using the back of that sheet and think through those questions and share it. But just pick one of them and use it today. Father God, I thank you for these men, for your love. Um, Would you inspire them? Would you use them? Would you strengthen them in their heart and their faith of you? Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.